Indeed it does, O God. Love like yours places demands that we simply cannot meet. We long to meet them and yet know that we do not. We long to think that what we have seen in Christ Jesus will evoke from us the kind of love that surpasses all other loves. And yet, Father, our affections are so sadly and unfortunately drained away. We come to ask for mercy. We come to ask you to forgive us, Father. We love you, but we love you so little. And we pray that you would grant grace that we might love you more. Lord God, we are a people who have been bought indeed with a price. We are not our own. We belong to another. And the one to whom we belong is the one who in our eyes is altogether lovely. Might we be swept away with the beauty of the risen one today. Father, take our gifts. Use them for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We give them for no other reason. We want to see Christ exalted among men from pole to pole. Use these monies for that purpose. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and return with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and you um, follow as, as I um, read our text, although I think it's a familiar one. It's the same one as last week. You might recall that we're in the middle of a, of a, um, a series, but um, I'll try to summarize last week in just a minute. Here's the text. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. I want you to watch two minutes of a video clip.
I introduced a series on the First Commandment, the greatest violation of which is idolatry. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I have in mind, ladies and gentlemen. And when I mention idolatry, that's customarily what comes to your mind. And I I said last week that my greatest task is to get you to broaden your definition of what is included in idolatry. I said to you last week that I am convinced that our emotional health and our mental well-being is tied to our obedience to the first commandment. And um, what we have found, I think, is, uh, what I think we find in the scriptures is, that there is a broad definition. You might recall that I took you to Ezekiel 14, where you find the phrase, idols of the heart. And I was suggesting to you that idols are not simply found in some um, uh, slab of concrete in Myanmar. But they're found in well-educated human hearts, like yours. And what I further suggested is that anything that demands affection from you has the potential to become an idol. Um, anything that is that you can give love to can indeed ultimately trick you, and you can love it too much. You may recall also, because this is the heart of the matter, ladies and gentlemen, I took you to Romans chapter 1, and we looked at verses 21 through 23, where I sought to give you the beginnings of a definition of idolatry. Because the fundamental problem, ladies and gentlemen, is our unwillingness to glorify God and to give Him the centrality which is His due. That's the, that's from which That's the place from which all idolatry springs. Our unwillingness to give God his rightful centrality. And then you may recall I mentioned the last verse of uh, 1 John chapter 5, which is really kind of staggering to me, ladies and gentlemen, that John, the Apostle John, the beloved Apostle, would close his first epistle with these words, little children... Keep yourself from idols. That is written to us, ladies and gentlemen. That's not written to those folks. That's written to us. And it pleads with us to keep ourselves from idols. 
And you may also remember that I mentioned that there was a, um, somebody had done a survey that 76% of American people believe that they give full obedience to the first commandment. And I pointed out to you, or tried to, that the only way that that is possible, the only way that it is possible for us to conclude that we have given full obedience to the first commandment is by defining idolatry like that. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, if that is idolatry, if that's all idolatry is, I'm innocent. But if we broaden our understanding, and and I said to you that Christians have a tendency to push idolatry to the margins of their lives. But if we broaden the definition, ladies and gentlemen, 76% of the people wouldn't say that. They wouldn't dream of saying that. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I'm suggesting to you that anything... Remember the the quote that I used from uh, St. Augustine? Oh, it was... It's just what... That the, that the primary problem that we have is not that we're great rule breakers. You're not rule breakers in the main. We're not, our primary problem is not that we're rule breakers. But what he said, our primary problem is, is what he called inordinate loves. Not that we love our kids too much, but that we love God too little in comparison to how much we love. And, and there, ladies and gentlemen, We continue to approach, I hope, a definition of what is at, what is a violation of the first commandment. Um, now, what I want to do this morning is give you a bit more definition. Actually, a lot more definition. Because again, I'm convinced that if I can define it for you well enough, if I can help you broaden your understanding of what is being denounced, in the first commandment, then you will see that my assertion in the beginning was correct. And here's the assertion that my mental health and my emotional well-being are tied to my obedience to the first commandment. So if I can give you an accurate depiction of what is at stake in violation of the first commandment, then I think you'll see that indeed so. We're ill emotionally, many of us, Because we violate the first commandment. And my goal, as I told you, was to be a physician of the soul. A term that the Puritans love to use. A physician of the soul. That we might become healthier as a people. As we take a look at the first commandment over several weeks. But the first two are given over to just trying to get a decent definition. We're going to do more of that today. Now, I'm going to start with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to write something down, write this down. It's not that long. But if you'd like to get a decent, good, stirring definition of um, what I have in mind, this is what C.S. Lewis uses to describe our tendency to make other gods. Here it is. He calls it the sweet poison of the false infinite. The sweet poison of the false infinite. Gang, what we are doing is that we allow substitute sacreds or false infinities to fill the vacuum that is created 
from our failure to make God the center and the source of all of life. Remember the Romans 1 passage. I said that the biggest problem that we have, the root of the problem is we fail to give God the centrality which is his due. Because we do fail to give him the centrality, we, um, we create substitute sacreds to, and, and we use them to try and fill the vacuum that was created by our failure to put God in that place. By our disobedience to the first commandment, what we do is that we create a vacuum and then we stuff it. The vacuum, that is. We stuff the vacuum with all kinds of created things, created gods, uh, things that we are um, uh, either create or think we can control. We fill the vacuum with created things. Like what, Jimmy? Well, you tell me. Gang, what things tend to compete with Jesus Christ for your affection? What is it that tends to compete with Jesus Christ for your affection? That's what we claim in there, uh, cram in there. Whatever it is that competes with Jesus for your affection, then that's, what, that's the created thing that we use to, to fill the vacuum that exists because we didn't put God there. Ladies and gentlemen, fill in the blank. If I only had, then I would be happy. There it is. And it probably differs for every one of you. For every one of us. If I only had, then I would be happy. Guys, I want to quote G.K. Chesterton now. And whenever I quote C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton in the same sermon, you know I've done my work. But this is, this is a quote from G.K. Chesterton. It's brief. And he says, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. You know, guys, virtually anything can become an idol. I found this staggering. But ancient Egyptians used to worship dung beetles. I don't know what a dung beetle is, but it doesn't sound like something I want to worship. Today, ladies and gentlemen, in certain sections, in certain Hindu environments in India, people still worship cobras and the smallpox virus. Now, again, you're smarter than that. But the point is the same. Virtually anything has the potential to become an idol. Um, you know, I, I, I caused a lot of stir last week when I mentioned college football and sugar. And I thought, well, my, my, because I included those because of me, not you. Those weren't aimed at you. Those are things in my life that I struggle with. Virtually anything can become an idol, ladies and gentlemen. If you want a biblical example of that, then you just need to read the last few chapters of the book of Judges. Do you remember that? We, we studied it a couple of years ago, but... The book of Judges, you remember at the end of the book of Judges, there's these five or six chapters where they repeat this sentence over and over and over again. Here's the sentence. 
There was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Remember that? That's repeated over and over again in those five chapters of Judges. When there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Once you remove the king, we create a vacuum. And as we all know, nature abhors a vacuum. And once you remove the king, you create a vacuum into which we stuff all kinds of other created things. What is it that tends to compete with Jesus for your affection? And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is an idol. I have another little hero by the name of Simone Wheel. I just met her about six months ago. She died at age 34. Uh, she was a part of the French resistance during World War II. She died at age 34 by, of starvation because she refused to eat more than the members of the resistance had to eat. So she died of starvation. But Simone Wheel says, one has only the choice between God and idolatry. One has only the choice between God and idolatry. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. We'll put anything in that vacuum, ladies and gentlemen. Anything that we think would ultimately bring us joy and purpose and meaning and worth and beauty and honor, we'll stuff anything in there. We, we inflate things that in and of themselves may be good. But we inflate them to this, to this level, to some kind of religious proportion so that we can fill the vacuum that was created by God's exclusion. Now, folks, let me underscore something at this point. When I said good things, I mean that. Most of all, most frequently, it is a good thing. Um, for instance, is family a good thing? Sure it is. But we inflate things that may be good in and of themselves... To such a religious proportion so that we can fill the vacuum that was created when God was excluded. Health. Is health a good thing? Sure it is. But for some, it has become an idol. So it's the good thing, ladies and gentlemen, that normally um, asks for affection and in way too many instances... Gets way too much. Again, I, I, I quote Augustine. Our problem is not that we are rule breakers. Our problem is inordinate loves. Is family a bad thing? No. Do we love family too much? No. But we love God too little in comparison to how we love family. Guys, um... One of the things that I, I, I just wanted to read you this, just a statement that I love made by Moses. Don't, don't turn. I'm, I'll just read it to you. But it's in Deuteronomy 32 because I think it explains some things. Um, Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to read you two verses. It's in verse 46. Set your hearts on all the words which I testify you today. 
Of course, Moses is telling them about God and his demands, etc., etc. So he says, set your heart on, on those things which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. All the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you. Here it is. Because it is your life. Set your mind on everything that God has said to you. Teach it to your children. Because it's not a small thing. No, no, no. It is your life. But somewhere in that process, we conclude that that isn't so. We've got to have something else for life. We need some other something. So God becomes very remote. His commandments irrelevant. And thus, it's no wonder, ladies and gentlemen, that we find so much shoddy living, so much inconsistent living, so much faulty living, so much shameful living among Christians. The Bible says all that God is and he has said to you is your life. And we say, no, we like that. That's fine. But we need something else. We're going to have to have something beyond that. And thus, he and his commands become irrelevant and remote. And thus, we end up with all kinds of inexcusable behavior on the part of people who know better. Us. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the inexcusable behavior on the part of the people of God finds or can trace its source, I'm convinced, to our disobedience to the first commandment. Because we failed to put God in the place that was his due, and now we're stuffing all kinds of other things in there, and they demand this, this, and this. We erect God substitutes. And the result of that, ladies and gentlemen, is that we have become desperate and restless. I say to you again, our emotional health and mental well-being have been forfeited because we refuse to put God in the place that he rightfully deserves. Now, now let me give you the bad news. Do you know the story of Elijah? Uh, at least the, the, probably the big story on Elijah was his battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Well, let me tell you about it if you never. It's, it's found in 1 Kings 18. But there came a point in the life and uh, ministry of Elijah that he challenged the prophets of Baal to basically a duel, a contest on the top of Mount Carmel. Remember that? And they, they, he gathers all the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel and, and, um, and he says this. All right, today's the day. We're going to determine who is the real God. We're going to figure this thing out. Either Jehovah is God or Baal's God. We're going to figure out which one, but we're going to find out who's God today. Here's how we're going to do it. Whatever God answers with fire, he's the God. And so they built this little altar, and whatever God answered with fire on that altar, he was determined to be the real God. And so, being the polite prophet that he was, uh, Elijah says, you guys go first. So they do. They start out early in the morning. They got this altar, and they're praying to Baal. Oh, Baal, come on. 
Don't let us down. And then nothing happens. And Elijah's off on the corner and saying, hey, maybe he's gone to sleep. Why don't you shout louder? So they do. They shout louder. And then they begin to sing. And then later in the day, their shouting and their singing is not enough. They begin to dance. And so in this frenzied picture of the prophets of Baal, you know, whooping it up around the altar, you know, and yelling and screaming and, and, and dancing, somebody decides, okay, this will do it. They cut themselves. They slice their bodies so that they can bleed. So that'll get him. That'll bring Baal. That'll push him over the edge. That'll, that'll prompt him to, to, to get into motion. Now, here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. That's what our gods are doing to us. They start out demanding this. And we discover, well, you know, that isn't, that isn't, that isn't working. It, it worked a little bit, you know, but, but um, then he ups the ante. And he keeps asking more and more and more. That's how idols treat their followers, ladies and gentlemen. They keep demanding more to the point that we give them our blood if we can just get them to meet our needs. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't get it, let me get it for you. Some of us have put kids, our children, in a place where when they were young, you know, they were meeting all our needs and it was so drag them around in that little stroller and let everybody say how cute they were. And it, you know, we give them this and this and then they grow up a little bit more and, and then, oh, the, the, the ante goes up and then on and on. And then pretty soon, the only piece of identity we have left is those kids. And then they come to teenagehood. And one of them blows it. Morally. Academically. And we come to the place as if we don't have one smidgen of value left in us. And our gods leave us in our own pool of blood. I could do that for every one of our idols, ladies and gentlemen. Not just kids. That's how the gods treat us. The false gods. They keep upping the ante. They keep demanding more. They want our performance to get better. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I guess my point is this. If I give my loyalty to something other than God, I am the one who ends up suffering. If I give my loyalty to anything but Yahweh, I am the one that ends up suffering. Guys, you listen to me. You listen to this next two or three sentences. Because I'm telling you, our emotional health and mental well-being are at stake. Listen. Everything. Or anything. You, you pick your word. Everything in my life. Or anything in my life that makes me anxious. 
or angry or afraid or leads to insecurity. All of that comes because I look at something and I say, if I don't have that, I am not lovable. If I don't have that, I am not valuable. If I don't have that, I am not successful. If I don't have that, I have no worth. If my kids don't perform well, if I don't succeed in my job, if I don't have a certain kind of body, if I don't get approved by a certain group of people, if I don't get that, I have no worth. Ladies and gentlemen, we are an anxiety-riddled people. And we are so because we have believed this lie. If I don't get that, my happiness is threatened. Or if I lose that, my joy is gone. We, we erect these things, ladies and gentlemen, because we believe that God is not enough. That's why we did it. We did not give him the centrality which was his right. He is not enough so that if I'm ever to be happy, I must have. What is it? What is it for you? Folks, one other quote. This is from Thomas Oden. And again, I'm trying to give us enough definition so that we can profit from this thing. But this is, this is very philosophically said, but boy, it is powerful. This is rather long. You probably can't get this. But this is from Thomas Oden, and he says, When a finite value has been elevated to centrality and imagined as a final source of meaning, without which one cannot receive life joyfully, then one has chosen a God. Can I read it again? When a finite value has been elevated to centrality and imagined as a final source of meaning without which one cannot receive life joyfully, then one has chosen a God. Guys, I want to wrap this up by giving you eight examples. You stay with me. Eight examples. And what I want you to do is that I want you to, I want to give you three they call them a protasis. That is the beginning of the sentence, the first part of the sentence. And then I'm going to give you eight different apotheses. That is the last half of the sentence. Here's the first part. You make your choice. Life only has meaning if, or I only have worth if, or I will be happy if. Plug that in at the first part of every sentence. Now, let me give you an example. This is pretty easy. Um, I, will, I will be happy if Mr. Wright is in love with me. Or life only has meaning if Mr. or Miss Wright, Mr. Wright is in love with me. Or I only have worth if Mr. Wright is in love with me. Now tell me, in that instance, who is your God? Mr. Wright. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, if you do such a thing, you'll end up in a pool of your own blood. 
Let me give you seven others. Life only has meaning if I have a particular kind of look or body. I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body. I will be happy if I have a particular kind of look or body. Number two. Life only has meaning if people are dependent on me and need me. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. I will be happy if people are dependent on me and need me. Number three. Life only has meaning if I get a lot done, am highly successful, excelling in my career. I only have worth if I get a lot done, am highly successful, or am excelling in my career. I will only be happy if I get a lot done, am highly successful, and excelling in my own, or excelling in my career. Number five. Life only has meaning if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and nice things. I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth, Financial freedom or nice things. I will only be happy if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, nice things. Number six. Life only has meaning if the one person in my life is happy and is happy to be there. I only have worth if this one person is in my life And happy to be there. I will be happy if this one person is in my life and happy to be there. Next to the last. Life only has meaning if I'm in. I only have worth if I'm in. I will only be happy if I'm in. Here's the last one. Life only, has, life only has meaning if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. I only have worth if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. I will be happy if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. What I've just done, ladies and gentlemen, is expose our idols. This is where I'd like to bring all of us. This is the place I'm about to tell you, the place I'd like to bring all of us. Here it is. I may not be as guilty as others of you in one particular sin. Let's just say um, adultery. I have not committed adultery, ladies and gentlemen. I know you'll be glad to hear that. I may not be as guilty as others of you over that specific sin. But I am as guilty as anyone in this room of believing a lie. And that lie is that it's going to take something other than Jesus Christ to make me happy. Our pain will differ, certainly. 
but there is a large degree of similarity in our sin. You know, in fact, let, let me just put it like this. Let's say I found somebody that I really loved and I thought, well, gosh, if she's in my life, I'll be happy. And so I marry her. And then I discover, hmm, that didn't do it. I'm going to have to get me another one. Because that won't make me happy. You see, ladies and gentlemen, do you see what I said last week about the first commandment is the first commandment for a reason? So I go out and commit adultery? Because the real thing that I want... Is somebody to fill up the vacuum that I created when I didn't put God in the center of my life? The reason that I committed adultery, ladies and gentlemen, is because I believed a lie that I had to have something else other than Jesus Christ to make me happy? That's why I did it! Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about the rest of you. I can't speak for you. But I long. I long to be free of cultural happiness systems. I long to be set free from anything that tempts me to believe that it can really make me happy. They haven't worked, ladies and gentlemen. You know they haven't. And on occasion, they just leave us bleeding and empty. I want to say this before I close, ladies and gentlemen, because it's to you who are here who, are, who have not yet received Jesus Christ. I want you to know something about yourself. George Whitfield said that self-righteousness is the first idol taken out of the heart. The first idol to go is self-righteousness. That is, the pride that you have in your heart that will not allow you to submit to Jesus Christ. That, my friend, is your God. You must be set free from thinking that your performance and your behavior will merit your acceptance before God. The first idol to go is self-righteousness. And I say to you, my friends, all idol systems are essentially a form of works righteousness. Because we're trying to prove our worth via our performance. We tried to do that for our eternity and we discovered that is a failing. Now we bring that same mindset into the house of God with us. And we spend our lives dancing on the top of Mount Carmel. Asking God for some kind of demonstration that we have worth. When he's already given it to us. When he gave us himself. Set me free, oh God. From cultural happiness systems. Our Father, I do pray that you might grant that request, not only on my behalf, but on the behalf of all the people in here who are crying it out right now. We know, O oh God, our error. We see it in all of its 
ugliness. And we long to be set free. Forgive us, O God, that we refused. We refused to put you in the place that you were supposed to be. And then started cramming all kinds of created things into that vacuum and we ended up dancing and bleeding. Oh God, what grace you have to love a people like me. Now, Father, point us in the right direction where we can discover the grand and glorious freedom of finding that Jesus Christ is all of our beauty, all of our worth, all of our value, all of our life. And Father, if you've led people here today who have not yet seen that their self-righteousness, the foolishness of believing that they can save themselves is nothing better than what we saw in the video, is to worship my own performance. Now, Father, use what's been said to glorify yourself. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.